You're listening to a History Hub podcast. History Hub is based at the University College Dublin School of History. For more information, go to historyhub.ie. In this episode, a paper recorded at Commemoration and Conflict in Ireland, 1920-1922. This conference took place in Queen's University, Belfast, on the 12th of June, 2017. The conference was organised as part of the Arts and Humanities Research Council-funded project Commemorating Partition and Civil Wars in Ireland. 2020 to 2023, in conjunction with the School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics and the Institute of Irish Studies at Queen's University Belfast. Commemorating Partition and Civil Wars in Ireland, 2020 to 2023, is a project run by Dr. Marie Coleman and Dr. Dominic Bryan that examines approaches to the upcoming centenary of the Partition of Ireland. All papers at the conference were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media and are now publicly available on History Hub. This episode features the annual Irish Studies Lecture, which was given by Professor Richard Kearney from Boston College. The lecture, Commemoration, Trauma and Recovery, was introduced by Professor Peter Gray, Acting Director of the Institute of Irish Studies at Queen's University, Belfast. Uh, good afternoon, uh, everyone. Thank you very much for, for coming. Um, it's uh, my responsibility as the Director of the Institute, Institute of Irish Studies here in Queen's to welcome you uh, to tonight's uh, Irish Studies International Lecture uh, here in the Peter Froggatt Centre. Queen's is uh, very proud of its pioneering role in developing interdisciplinary research in Irish Studies. We have the longest established Institute of Irish Studies anywhere in the world, going back to 1965, operating now for over 50 years, founded, as I'm sure many of you are aware, by uh, Ireland's first Professor of Geography, Emmer Eston Evans, uh, back in 1965, very much with a vision of bringing together not just the humanities, but the humanities and the social sciences uh, in creating an interdisciplinary environment uh, for interpreting the history, the culture, the landscape uh, and the mind uh, of Ireland. Tonight we're kind of reviving a tradition of, uh, of annual Irish Studies lectures. We've had uh, previously very eminent speakers, uh, such as Professor Mar- 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 Marianne Elliott, of the University of Liverpool, Professor Joe Lee of New York University, and it's a tremendous, tremendous pleasure for me this evening uh, to welcome uh, tonight's uh, Irish Studies uh, International Lecturer, Professor Richard Carney. Uh, over many years, uh, we've been developing connections uh, with a number of, of international institutions. One of the most important ones for us is Boston College uh, in the United States, uh, of which uh, Richard Carney is the uh, Professor of Philosophy. So, uh, Professor Carney is a native of County Cork. Uh, he graduated from University College Dublin before going on to receive his PhD from the University of Paris-Sorbonne in 1980 uh, before returning to teach in UCD where he was made Professor of Philosophy in 1988. Since 1999, he's held the Charles B. Selig Chair of Philosophy at Boston College. As well as his academic roles and accolades, Professor Carney has presented five series of lectures on culture and philosophy for Irish and British television and broadcast extensively on the European media. And he's the author of more than 20 books on European philosophy and literature and has edited or co-edited 14 more. As a public intellectual, he was involved in drafting a number of proposals for a Northern Ireland peace uh, agreement in 1983, 1993 and 1995. Professor Carney's uh, wide-ranging research interests include... Uh, the Ethics of Memory, 
and remembering. And these are obviously very timely topics in Northern Irish society at the moment as we seek to address the legacies of our recent past. Of late, the more distant past of 100 years ago has become a subject of much interest on the island as we proceed through uh, what is known as the Decade of Centenaries, which commemorates the events of the period from 1912 to 1922, which witnessed the First World War, the Easter Rising, Irish independence, partition and the creation of Northern Ireland. Queen's researchers are taking a leading role in generating new research to enhance our understanding of this period and undertaking wide-ranging public engagement and impact activities to bring this knowledge to a wide public audience outside the Academy. So this Irish Studies International Lecture tonight has been organised in conjunction with one such project, uh, bringing together uh, uh, academia and uh, a wider uh, uh, civic society in understanding our past. Uh, It's a project called Commemorating Partition and Civil War in Ireland, led by Dr. Marie Coleman and Dr. Dominic Bryan from the School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics. And I'm particularly grateful uh, to Dr. Marie Coleman for putting in so much hard work to organise today's uh, uh, seminar that we had had earlier uh, on uh, commemorating the Irish Civil War and tonight's uh, Irish Studies International Lecture. So without further ado, it's my great privilege uh, to welcome tonight's guest speaker, Professor Richard Carney, who's going to speak to us on the subject of commemoration, trauma and recovery. Richard. So thank you very much, Peter, for, for introducing me and inviting me, and also to Mary Coleman for organising everything, and to Morris for kindly uh, agreeing to say a few words of response. So I, I'll begin with a few informal uh, words on the philosophy behind this talk, which is mainly a talk about some micro-narratives um, around the question of traumatised history and how history and story converge sometimes to address the unexperienced experience that defines trauma. Trauma in Greek is wound, um, and it, it is such a powerful striking of the psyche that, as Freud and the trauma studies experts have pointed out, it, it is registered as a gap, as a lack of names, as a silence. Hence Joyce's silence, exile, and cunning. Um, but it's a silence that doesn't go away and that can repeat itself symptomatically uh, down through the, through the generations. Hence the importance of doing the work of recovering and uncovering some of the forgotten stories. Because, of course, there will always be the triumphal uh, narratives, the big narratives, that define British or Irish history, uh, official history, na- national history. But behind that, there's very often a, a subtext, a subterranean uh, subtext of uh, what I call micro-narratives, neglected narratives. So I want to look, look, look at some of those narratives relative to the famine 1916, both as a double remembrance of the Psalm and the Dublin Rising, and then some post-1916 uh, stories. Um, a word then on the philosophy behind it. Plato, at the very beginning of Western philosophy, pointed out that there were two ways of remembering. One was what he called memory as mnemosyne, as icastike, hence our word icon, iconic memory, which very much had to do with knowing something, that something had happened and it was done and you could record it. And then on the other hand, there was what he called mnemosyne, 
fantastique, and so word fantasy, but it was an imaginative, constructive uh, role of memory, um, which was not so much about knowing, but rather about doing. Not about recording, but about making and remaking. And Aristotle was to make much of this in the poetics uh, when he says that for any good, sane society of you know, good citizens, he, he was talking about Athens, of course, <clears throat> you needed what he called um, public narratives, uh, mythos mimesis, mythos meaning a plot, hence the word myth, and mimesis, the imitation of action, which in a recreative mode, uh, implotted time and history so that instead of something being one thing after another, meta, that would be mere chronicle, it becomes history as story, mimesis, mythos, and then it becomes one thing because of another, dia. So that's where history uh, becomes story, and it has that ambiguity in most Indo-European languages, of course, uh, Histoire in, in France, which can mean both history or, you know, raconte-moi des histoires, tell me what's the story, and Geschichte in German and so on and so forth. So that particular move from one kind of history as knowing, very important, acastique, to history as making and remaking, which brings in an ethical dimension, is, is something that concerns me. Um, Nietzsche... Uh, leaping forward, you know, to, to millennia, uh, in his famous essay on history, makes a distinction between monumental history, which is very much uh, reified history, congealed history, official history, uh, necessary for any national identity. But behind that, there is what he calls a genealogical or a critical history. And this, again, is history in the making, that history is not just the raised gestate, what has happened, but also the stories of what has happened, the Historia Brerum Gestarum. And there you have stories Geschichte uh, mixing with and crossing with uh, history as Geschichte. And it becomes a double mode of remembering. And for Nietzsche, the critical genealogical was extremely important because as an existentialist, that brings back our responsibility as to how we reclaim or recover or cover up the past. Because one of the decisions ethically one, one has to make, said Nietzsche, about the past once you uncover it as something living, as not just, you know, what happened, but what might have happened, could have happened, should have happened, didn't happen. Uh, the as if, telling it as if it happened like this, as well as telling it as it happened. So that double fidelity to the two modalities of, of history is past and history is always still anticipatory that the people engaged in the Psalm in 1916, um, their history is bigger than they went, they fought, they died, or they survived and were imprisoned. It's also what they dreamt of, what they wished for, what they thought they were doing. So it's, again, that double fidelity to these two aspects of, of history, uh, actual history and anticipatory history, the latter being history of possibilities. Arrows of futurity, as Paul Ricoeur says, that were fired but never actually reached their, their target. But we have a debt to the dead, not just for their failures, but also for their dreams and anticipations and ambitions. Um, and finally, a word perhaps on Freud, who made a very famous distinction, as many, many of you will know, related to trauma, uh, an essay called um, Mourning and Melancholy. And melancholy 
is history, a way of cl- claiming the past, where you cling to an object. For Freud, it's the lost object in terms of, of, of childhood psychic development. You cling to the lost object, uh, or in the case of death, the, the, the beloved who is gone, um, in a way that y- you house it in your unconscious and it, it's not worked through into mourning, which is the letting go of the lost object. So in melancholy, and he calls it a pathology, you cling to it and it becomes a form of compulsive repetition, action and reaction. So for Freud and subsequent uh, trauma studies, going back to Kathy Carruth and others uh, today, uh, this, is, this is a very important work of therapy and of ethics to try and move melancholy into mourning. So there are two kinds of memory, as it were, enabling and disabling, uh, good and bad, authentic and inauthentic, healing and maiming. Um, and finally, a word um, on Paul Ricoeur's history, memory and forgetting, which of course is, uh, Ricoeur was my, my mentor in Paris when I was studying, but also the mentor of uh, Macron, uh, who actually worked with Ricoeur as his assistant when he was publishing Memory, History and Forgetting. And in several of his speeches before and since uh, his election, he has quoted Ricoeur in very interesting ways, including on the whole colonial history in, in North Africa, uh, where he actually admitted that the French had engaged in crimes against humanity and thought that this was a very important part of, of French memory to acknowledge that wrong, uh, as in fact uh, is analogous to most imperial nations. It, 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 as I say, got him into a lot of trouble. But one of Ricoeur's main ideas, again, that will ghost my talk here today, is that of, of little narratives and exchanging narratives, exchanging memories. Uh, and uh, a very important essay of his, which I think had deeply informed Macron's thinking, uh, which is that it's called For a New Ethos of Europe, the Exchange of Memories and Stories. That one person's triumph is another person's wound. And we've got to go back and forth between these between these memories and exchange them in, in sort of a reciprocal exchange of uh, rival narratives. All right, so much for my um, two-minute <laughs> philosophical preview. And now let me uh, move to the matter at hand, uh, which is the question of commemorating uh, the famine in 1916 in particular, and then also some as I say, post-1916 stories. So, 1916 was not just about 1916. It was also about other events before and after 1916. Events real and imagined, spoken and unspoken, remembered and unremembered. From the mythic death of Cúchulain and the Great Book of Invasions down to the 1798 rebellion, the Fenian Revolt and the terrible famine of the 1840s. Such formative traumas would find voice again in the historic 1916 rising, commemorated last year. The great ruptures and calamities of Ireland's tragic history would, many 1916 rebels believed, be at last redeemed. The proclamation of the Irish Republic said as much. It summoned the Irish people to rise up in the name of lost generations and fight for liberty. Quote, in the name of God and of the dead generations from which she receives her old tradition of nationhood, Ireland, through us, summons her children to her flag and strikes for freedom. Quote, unquote. The signatories appealed to a transgenerational legacy of suffering and struggle, where the forgotten victims of history could be revived in a glorious act of emancipation 
for future generations. It was a classic feat of anticipatory memory. By this double solicitation of the faithfully deceased and those still to come, it, the 1916 proclamation, claimed to break open historical time to a more mythic time, a time where, quote, all the children of the nation, past and future, could be cherished equally. Portrait Pierce, the leader of the Rising, as you know, had already invoked the dead in his famous graveside oration for Jeremiah Donovan Ross in 1915. Here, Pierce spoke of new life rising from the graves of dead generations, the same phrase exactly used in the proclamation. Believing himself to be in what he calls spiritual communion with these ancestral ghosts of the past, Pierce declared that life springs from death, and he was surely not unmindful of the 40,000 souls who had perished of hunger during the famine some 70 years previously in a town closely associated with O'Donovan Rossa, namely Skibbereen in West Cork. Indeed, Pierce's own grandparents lived through the national catastrophe. The forgotten victims of the bad times on Drogsay would surely be amongst those redeemed in the sacrificial martyrdom of the Easter Rising. Never said, but perhaps unconsciously assumed. The time for the insurrection, again, as you all know, was planned for Easter Sunday as a day of holy resurrection, a miraculous moment when Ireland's ghosts might return finally as ancestors and give birth to a new independent Ireland. As Pierce put it, quote, from the graves of the dead spring living nations, and while Ireland holds these graves, Ireland unfree shall never be at peace. His famous oration at the funeral of O'Donovan Rossa, August 1950. I find it surprising that Pierce and other 1916 leaders did not explicitly identify the famine as a direct cause of the rebellion. And I suspect that this omission was perhaps symptomatic of an unconscious repression of this inherited trauma. For trauma, it certainly was. The loss of over one million people to disease and starvation in 1946, sorry, 45 to 46, the forced exile of another two million in the following decade, and the near decimation of Ireland's native Gaelic culture, thereafter banished to the meagre extremities of the western seaboard. As Michael Higgins notes, the Irish famine of 84-50 was the greatest social disaster in terms of morality, sorry, mortality, maybe morality too, <laughs> and suffering that Ireland has ever experienced. It was also the worst social calamity based on crop failure ever experienced in Europe, indeed in the developed world in modern times. What Higgins calls the desperate struggle for an adequate term was evident in the lack of commonly accredited memories, narratives, or names for the famine for the immediate generations of survivors. Instead, a loose variety of stand-ins were used in both common languages, when they were used at all, on Goethe, on Drogsheil, the hunger, the calamity, the bad times, Black 47, and so forth. While it is true that a few protagonists of the rising, notably Casement, Connolly, and Maud Gahn, were shocked by the brutal horror of the famine, even they made no explicit causal connection between it and the rising. No one spoke of the rebellion as an act of defiance or revenge against the empire that had sanctioned such unspeakable wrong. Yet who could deny that the ruins of abandoned famine villages ghosted the rubble of Dublin after 1916? To juggle with the Derry poet Seamus Dean, the hunger in their bones erupts in stones. Unspeakable was the operative term. The famine was an experience of brutal truncation, 
a moment that aborted the development of Irish cultural history, dividing it into before and after. Like all great traumas, it was an unexperienced experience that could be rep- that could not be represented or explained at the time, but would have to await generations before being memorialised and worked through or acted out. The only viable response of survivors was, to echo James Joyce, silence, exile and cunning, the latter expressing itself in the adage, whatever you say, say nothing. Emily Lawless, writing of the famine at the turn of the 20th century, ruefully observed that the most visible mark of the event was its invisibility. No more than a few derelict famine roads and ghost villages which were quickly forgotten. Unclaimed and abandoned, roofless, disappearing ruins, futile and abortive. Lawless writes of, quote, wrecks of cabins with nettles spreading across their hearthstones, the last traces of what was once a populous village without so much as a hick yachat to say where it stood. So traumatised silence and ruins mixed with survivor guilt and the need to forget. The famine destroyed the very instruments that might have measured it. The rising was arguably a delayed response, 70 years après coup, as Freud would put it, a return of the repressed. We may say in short that the links between the Great Hunger and 1916 were less articulated than acted out, less acknowledged than performed. One moved from an act of rupture involuntarily endured the famine to one voluntary enacted the rising. For make no mistake about it, most of the 1916 leaders knew very well that they were heading for martyrdom, for glorious failure, and willed it so. We came here not to win but to lose, as one le- uh, rebel leader avowed, anticipating hunger striker Terence McSweeney's declaration three years later. It was not those who inflict the greatest suffering, but those who endure it who will win in the end. This was a logic of sacrificial suffering that mixing the Celtic Cucullan with the Messianic Christ triggered an unconscious repetition of traumas, seeking to transform the calamitous past into a new future. Elements of unpredictability, impossibility, shock and surprise informed both events, the traumatic ruin of Ireland's Gaelic population being replicated, ironically, tragically, in the traumatic oblation of the Dublin rebels. The famine split between victim and survivor foreshadowed, in ways, the 1916 split between Irish-British siblings, one brother joining uh, the the Royal Irish Fusiliers and heading for the Somme, the other uh, joining the IRB and signing up for the rising in Dublin. Following the unconscious logic of repetition, the Easter ritual of redemptive violence may, in retrospect, be seen as miraculously salvaging the unbearable, unnameable loss of the bad times. Its cathartic drama, thereby turning executed victims into national heroes, the crucified into the risen. And so it has been greeted by many over time, as we know, particularly in in the south of Ireland. By 1922, just six years after the rising, most of Ireland had become a free independent state. In the process, it's arguable that leaders of the new nation compensated for the non-remembering of the famine with an over-remembering of the rising. Grand narratives of myths and martyrdom quickly dwarfed the little stories of ordinary Irish men and women who had experienced the complex pain and confusion of 1916 firsthand, both during Easter week in Dublin 
and on the battlefields of Belgium and France, where thousands of Irish died at Ypres and the Somme that same year, 1916. In short, under-commemoration of famine victims in the 19th century became hyper-commemoration of martyred heroes in the 20th. This was an understandable strategy of compensation for a people humiliated by imperial hegemony and deprived of the work of memory necessary for genuine mourning. Yet something was lost in the often compulsive and ritualistic hyperbole of the repetition, namely, of the commemorative repetition, namely the reality principle of ordinary human lives, the memory of common brothers and sisters in arms who expired in the ruins of Dublin and the ruins of the sun alike. It's interesting in the first Doyle, um, Robert Barton, then Minister for Agriculture, um, suggested that 1916 be commemorated. I think this is one of the first discussions of commemoration. Um, not with uh, monuments to sacrificial martyrdom and bloodshed, um, but uh, with the planting of um, birch trees for each of the uh, executed signatory. Uh, his his uh, recommendation was not followed through on. But um, it's interesting that from very early on, there were debates about how you actually recover the memory of 1916. So the, 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 the contestation um, of commemoration. In an attempt, I'll return to this uh, later. In an attempt to temper this mood swing of memory and forgetting, I offer here, around 1916 that is, I offer here some stories included by the binary dualisms of official history, Irish and British. Responding to the traumatic legacy of breaking and splitting, I propose a sample of micro-narratives that disclose a logic of both and rather than either or. And so doing, I endeavour symbolically to transform melancholy into mourning, turning the repetition backwards of trauma, that repeats itself, into a repetition, repeats itself pathologically, into a repetition forwards of drama, what Aristotle called catharsis, the purging of our deep um, uh, drives and emotions of pity and fear. In short, my few examples are offered here as a modest attempt to address what Dori Laub, talking of the Holocaust, called a failure of witnessing. So between history and story, let me begin on a personal note. In 1966, I made a scrapbook of the 1916 heroes, and like most other schoolchildren in the Irish Republic, I was celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Rising. I presented the book to my teacher, Brother O'Reilly, in Christian Brothers College, Cork, and received a silver coin of Podrick Pierce in return. Half a century later, much has changed, and my goal is very different here this evening. Not this time to recount grand narratives of the great Irish martyrs, as I was doing as a 10-year-old child, but to look at some little narratives largely neglected by history. In West Cork, there's a saying, if you want to know what happened, ask your father. If you want to know what people say happened, ask your mother. So I propose to ask both questions by revisiting certain sites of memory where history and story overlap. History tells things that happened, stories things that might have happened. Where history stops, stories start. And as soon as stories start, they then become history and then need to again be woken up by stories. For as novelist Roddy Doyle put it, we need stories to fill the hole inside us. 
So in what follows, we'll be trying to fill in some gaps of history by supplementing memory with imagination, by telling it both as it happened and as if it happened in this way or that. For it's often in mixing history and story that we give a future to the past and that poets join hands with historians. So 1916 was a great rising and a great sundering between Britain and Ireland, North and South, nationalist and unionist. And there are two ways of reliving that split, either as a recurring division or as a chance to create something new. One way of recreating the past is by retrieving forgotten tales of opposite sides, two nations, two places, two persons, two parts of ourselves indeed, and transforming those tensions into novel modes of imagining. 1916 was a revolution of mind as well as might, it was as much about cultural imagination as it was about military insurrection. And last year, during the 2016 centenary of the Rising, Ireland, as you would have observed, witnessed many military commemorations. But sometimes, not always, forgot that half the 1916 leaders were poets and the revolutionary, and that the revolutionary generation that gave birth to the Rising teemed with artists and intellectuals, painters and playwrights, writers and storytellers, Roy Foster's uh, book, uh, Vivid Faces, very good, from, from Yeats, um, sort of covers in that, that gap very much, as, as of others. It's important then to move beyond martial gun, gun salutes and recover, in Yeats's words, the Ireland the poets have imagined. So militarist memory easily ignores just how complex 1916 was, particularly for those who lived it. The same year that saw almost 500 die in the Dublin Rising, saw 3,500 Irish from north and south die at the Battle of the Somme in a single day. This was a time of massive confusion. And it's not fair to remember one part of Ireland's family without remembering the other, namely both the Irish volunteers who fought against Britain and the Royal Irish Fusiliers who fought with Britain. It means honouring the Easter lilies symbolising those who died in Dublin and the red poppies symbolising those who died in Flanders. It means acknowledging what the Irish writer Sean O'Fallon called the Siamese duality of mind, epitomising British-Irish history. James Joyce famously argued that the Irish imagination was at its best when moving between two twinsome minds. That is, when it had two thinks at a time. The Irish, he pointed out, were always most creative in following a logic of both and, acknowledging a mix of double fidelities, religious, national, psychological, cultural, doublings that call for new mediations. Ireland is an island beside an island, part of an archipelago connected by waterways that make us all mongrel islanders. We are what we are, mongrel pure, Thomas Kinsella wryly observed. And his contemporary Seamus Heaney put it well regarding his own dual upbringing on the Irish border. I quote, two buckets were easier carried than one. I grew up in between. The key is this between that summons what Heaney called a symbolic reordering of Ireland open to new possibilities of Irishness, Britishness, Europeanness, planetariness, creatureliness, whatever. For whatever is given can always be reimagined. A very relevant phrase for those convening and uh, conversing in uh, uh, London today to bear in mind. The philosophy of Twinston Minds seeks to turn polar opposites into fertile openings. It's a way of thinking that informed, I think, the Good Friday Agreement of 98, ultimately sanctioned by British and Irish governments, a peace agreement that took the gun out of Irish politics, we hope for good, by allowing people to be British or Irish or both, the key word there being both. 
That document, like the 1916 proclamation itself, is still a promissory note. And one needs to make good on such promises rather than settle for stopgap solutions. There is still, sadly, as you all know, over 80 so-called peace walls separating communities here in Northern Ireland along sectarian lines. And almost 80% of education remains religiously segregated. War wounds fester south of the border too, and I gather there was a seminar here today on such civil war wounds. As a symbolic gesture beyond such divides, I offer here some stories of people who grew up in between. Tales of crossed identity, often eclipsed by monumental history. The true enemies of commemoration are not complexity and confusion, but purity and certitude. As Brian Friel reminds us in his play Translations, I quote, confusion is not an ignoble condition. Genuine catharsis comes from a crossing of narratives, transforming binaries into multiple belongings. And that's why I believe it's important to complicate and pluralize the memory of 1916 with new gestures of imagination. So let me begin with some stories of split siblings caught on opposite sides in 1916, all of which I heard from various friends and colleagues as I was putting together a performance with, a, with an artist, a Boston artist, Sheila Gallagher, uh, called Twins of Minds, uh, Recovering 1916 in Image and But as I started talking about it and looking, you know, conversing with various historians, um, stories, people would come up and say, this happened to my father, this happened to my grandfather. So I'll just begin with three very brief stories. Cyril and William Stevens were born within 14 months of each other in Fermanagh. And this story was told to me by um, Carl Stevens, uh, who's uh, an actor in Boston, Finnegan's Wake actor, who, whose uncle and father were, were involved in 1916. Cyril William Stevens were born within 14 months of each other in Fermanagh and ended up in opposing armies in 1916. Cyril joined the rebels while William, a soldier in the British Army, found himself guarding his own brother in a Dublin jail. One week after the Dublin Rising, they stared at each other across barbed wire. The uniforms they wore, Irish and British, were made by the same Dublin tailor. Same wool, same stripes, same buttons, same braid, only the colour was different. Olive green for Cyril, dun brown for William. There's a photograph of their reunion with their sister in 1946, two months before Cyril died, the last time they met. I didn't bring a PowerPoint, otherwise you'd see them up there. Another example involved siblings from the north of Ireland. This was a story told me by um, Mary Jones. Fervently Protestant, George and William Irvine became lovers of Gaelic and all things Irish. One day they saw two posters on a wall, one promising an Irish Republic, the other recruiting for king and country. Both called for the defence, both posters, called for the defence of small nations, namely Ireland on the one hand, Belgium on the other. William read the former, George the latter. They shook hands, wished each other well, and went their separate ways. On May 11th, 1916, a unionist paper, The Impartial Reporter, ran the headline, An Inniskillen Traitor, denouncing George Irvine as a rebel in the rising. But The Impartial had been partial. It had got the wrong brother. It was, in fact, William who fought in the rebellion, while George was serving in Flanders, protecting his British unit from German artillery. George loved his brother to the very end, and his passion for the teaching of Gaelic, according to his sister, never impaired, quote, his usefulness, either as a teacher or a soldier. A third story concerns blood brothers who switched uniforms during the Rising. 
this was told to me by, by Louise Callahan, a poet and friend in Dublin. On Easter Monday, Owen Cruz Callahan, her uncle, returned from England to his native Dublin. A 20-year-old Catholic serving in the British Air Corps, he'd been granted leave to visit his dying mother. He was wearing a British uniform and got caught in the crossfire. As it happened, a rebel sniper rescued him, took him to safety in the forecourts and exchanged uniforms. Next day, Owen crossed the Liffey and visited his mother for the last time. The sniper who rescued him was a Dublin school friend he'd sat beside for years. Just days after his return to England, Owen Callahan's plane was shot down by the Germans over Dover. Three generations later, his grandfather, his granddaughter, I'm sorry, granddaughter, poet Louise Callahan, wrote a verse called School Yearbook about a tale untold for almost a century. And this was a story that had not been told in the family for, for, for generations. I keep turning to his photo, a boy soldier home on leave, his last look. The story goes of him arrested, held over Easter in the forecourts, ice winds ploughing up the Liffey, insurgents as young as himself, among ruins, crouched in a door. Any one of them could be from his class in school. The contradictory clatter of war sounding off the cobbled keys. These few stories of forgotten figures, forgotten and remembered a hundred years later, were recovered by descendants uh, generations later. There are, I think, thousands of such examples all over Ireland, north and south, families split between dual loyalties, including members of my own Irish nationalist family in Cork, whose education was paid for by a British Navy pension. In fact, I believe that most people in Ireland who scratch their ancestral skin may uncover similar stories. This work of transgenerational memory remains a critical therapeutic task, even today. It matters for the health of the nation, any nation. Why? Because repressed wounds scar the psyche and return to haunt us again and again. Such wounds need to be constantly reworked in images and words. Indeed, when Sheila Galler and I were touring 16 cities with Twinsome Mines, and some of those cities were, were in America, the civil war wounds came out in question and answer afterwards. The American civil war wounds, when we were in Croatia, you know, it's a Croatian ceremony. I, I don't think we did it anywhere where there weren't um, transgenerational wounds um, that were addressed in the, in, the, in the conversations subsequent to the performance. In any case, revisiting micro-narratives of 1916, even in this small, modest way, one is struck by the contingency of events. The rising took many by surprise, and most were at the mercy of the moment. The majority of participants on both sides had no real clue what would result from their actions. So much depended on chance. What street poster you read? What uniform you chose? What message you believed? The Irish volunteers under Pierce promising independence from Britain? Or the national volunteers under Redmond urging solidarity with Britain against Germany? And one must not forget that both armies, rebel and British, were committed to providing wealth for soldiers' families. One should not underestimate the importance of British army salaries for the families of the 200,000 Irish who fought in the First World War. And the Irish volunteers also cared for their own, with assistance from labour unions at home and abroad, including the American mining unions of Pennsylvania and New England. It's also relevant to recall that both Irish Unionists and Nationalists claimed the same mythic hero, Cucullan, as their patron, a double claim witness to this day in the Gable murals of 
divided ghettos in Derry and Belfast. The fact is that in the hierarchical days of 1916, ordinary Irish and British soldiers were told little enough by their own leaders. And even the leaders themselves were frequently at odds. Just think of the conflicting commands coming from Pierce and MacNeil at the outbreak of the Rising, not to mention the muddling in British High Command. No wonder half the troops were bemused. Nothing confounds like war. There's even the tale of Dublin Fusiliers shooting at members of a British unit who were firing at women stealing bread from Boland's mills. The British authorities accused rebels of the shooting rather than admit to mutiny in their own ranks. Uh, that story was told to me by um, Oliver Raftery, Oliver Raftery, who had come across it in some of the um, papers of the Dominican, perhaps they were the Dominican fathers in the city centre. And one of, one of the soldiers involved in, in that mutiny, mini-suppressed mutiny, uh, confessed as much, and it was written up and only recently discovered. Um, Oliver is doing the, doing, doing the history of the papers. But if there was confusion in the streets of Dublin, it was worse in the trenches of Flanders. Private Willie Dunn in Sebastian Barry's novel, The Long Way Home, captures this vividly in an exchange with fellow Dublin fusilier Captain O'Hara. They've just received news of the Dublin executions and realised that their compatriots back home were not only firing at British uniforms like theirs, but worse, they were shipping arms from Germany. The queer thing is, said O'Hara, the queer thing is they were hoping the fucking Germans would help them. Who, Pete, said Willie. The fucking rebels, Willie. Oh, yeah, I know, said Willie, I know. Should was written on their piece of paper. Gallant allies in Europe, it said, wasn't it? So that means, like it or lump it, we're the fucking enemy. I mean, we're the fucking enemy of the fucking rebels. That's it, more or less. That's how I understand it anyway, said Willie. You see, I think that's very queer indeed, said Pete. It is, very, said Willie. I mean, whatever way you turn it, I would like to believe that what we've been doing out here has a reason to push the Hun back and all that, even if it doesn't have a reason. I know, said Willie. But he didn't completely know. So what can we call that? I don't know, Pete. So where does it leave us? Sitting here, Pete, is where, he said. Like Egypt's. And then Peter O'Malley said nothing for a little while. But I wish they hadn't shot those fellas all the same. It was almost a whisper. I wish they hadn't too, Pete, said Willie. Shortly after, in the novel, Willie writes to his father back in Ireland, recalling a rebel his own age that he'd seen being shot in a Dublin doorway. The ruins of the Belgian town of Ypres surrounding him become one with the ruins of Dublin, renamed the New Ypres in the postcard he holds in his hand. Both towns mere dots on a vast international map of battles and alliances, treaties and betrayals. Irish, British, German, French, one big mist of global confusion as mustard gas rolled through the trenches, 1916 was not just local Irish politics, it was European geopolitics. I think it is extraordinary, you know, to, to look at those postcards of Dublin, post-1916, with uh, Dublin renamed as the New Ypres. I mean, there the, the was an awareness in the immediate aftermath that what was happening in Ypres, you know, you lost, sort of a mother lost two sons there, and she may have lost a son in the GPO. So this kind of um, super imposition of Dublin as the new Ypres on the Ypres 
of the Somme. But those crossings were then separated out by official history, and we didn't hear much subsequently of the new Ypres, or not enough. But I think that's very much been challenged and changed uh, in, in, in recent commemorative uh, debates and actions and ceremonies, including last year. It's in retrospect that we divide historical models into grand narratives of binary opposition, Irish versus British, Northern versus Southern, Unionist versus Nationalist. It's very often after the events, and I mean pretty much in the immediate aftermath of the events, that the makers of memory impose neat ideologies on what was often a big puzzle at the actual time. What are now celebrated as deliberate military campaigns were frequently conducted through foggy dew and swirling smoke. For in our lust for simplification, we often forget the mess of history. Militarist memorials can hide the perplexity of human action and passion. But if we recall with historian Benedict Anderson that every nation is an imagined community, we can begin to reimagine 1916 in new ways. Making history is also a matter of remaking it, giving futures to aborted pasts. Think again of Aristotle's mythos mimesis. History is story, poetics as in plotted history. We need to recollect not only the terrible beauty that was born in Yeats's famous poem, but also the stillbirths, the half-births, the almost-births that never saw the light of day. The anecdotes related thus far are oral memories. And before moving on to written ones, or a written one, I'll only have time for one, I think, there's one more oral tale I would like to record briefly. It's a story I first personally as a pupil growing up in Glenstall Abbey in Southern Ireland, County Limerick, and which was never committed to official history because it simply didn't fit. In 1916, a young Limerick woman, Winifred Barrington, aged 23, was serving in the Ambulance Corps of the British Army in France. While she was nursing soldiers in the trenches, she was also writing postcards home to her rebel friend, Mick Hayes, back in Glenstall, Maru Village. One such card read, I'm looking forward tremendously to returning to Ireland in March. I've been to a few dances and plays. One Irish one was grand. I'll ride up and see you directly I get home. Best regards, Winnie Barrington. Winnie, as she was known, traversed boundaries with abandon, ignoring divisions of class and religion. Growing up in Ireland in conflicted times, she defied convention and daily crossed the road separating her ascendancy castle from the Catholic labours of Maru village. Mike Hayes was her favourite. In the mornings, Winnie brought food to poor families in the hills, and afternoon she rode to hounds with her Protestant neighbours and dined with loyalist landlords. Evening, she danced with Mike Hayes and his Fenian friends on the old platform near Abington Bridge. The Hayes family was well known for its Republican loyalties, but that didn't stop the relationship between Mike and Winnie. And it was reported that on one occasion when Crown forces captured a tricolour from Mike and were holding it as evidence, Winnie visited the barracks and smuggled the flag out in the folds of her petticoat. We're already into the War of Independence. But her close relationship with Mike Hayes didn't prevent her from also befriending Major Henry Biggs, district inspector of a local British brigade. Biggs captured local IRA men and had them strapped to cars as hostages as he drove them through the local countryside. But Winifred, we were told, quote, only saw the good side of the 26-year-old Biggs, forming what one neighbour described as an inexplicable friendship between two young people. She had no enemies. She trusted everyone. She thought she could sup with devils and turn them into friends. One evening at the height of hostilities, 
Winnie left Glenstall Castle on her white horse. As she passed through the gate, she met her father, Sir Charles, returning from London. He asked her to be careful and to be back in time for supper. She also met Mr. O'Brien, the gatekeeper, who warned her not to go. O'Brien, a British Army veteran, particularly loved Winnie, who cooked for him in his lodge. He guessed where she was going and tried to stop her. I'm a soldier myself, he said, but I wouldn't dare to speak with those soldiers across the way. He was referring to Major Biggs and his men. But Winnie replied that, having served in the Great War, she need fear no one, and rode on. Later that afternoon, Winnie shared tea with British officers at a mansion in Killiscully, and it was while returning in a car driven by Biggs at 7.30pm that they were ambushed by the IRA at Coolborine Bridge. Among the ambush party were the Hazes, but it was never revealed who actually fired the fatal shot. All we can suppose is that some of the Republican Republicans that Winnie danced with on Abington Bridge were at Coolborine Bridge when she expired. There was no trial, no evidence, and no one involved in the attack was prepared to tell the full story. But there are many different versions of what happened that evening. One account claims that Winnie was dressed in mannish manner, jodhpurs and military cap, and was therefore mistaken for Biggs. Another claimed she was having a driving lessons from Biggs and was sitting beside him at the wheel and got caught in the crossfire. Yet another says she flung herself across his body to prevent him being shot. One of the ambushers is said to have apologised to the dying Winifred as she expired from a bullet through her lung, while another, it said, put several more shots into the body, swearing the bitch would have lived if she'd kept better company. No one knows for sure, no one told. But when Winifred was laid out in her castle amid bouquets of rhododendrons from the Glenstall Gardens, there wasn't a soul from the townland, Catholic or Protestant, Republican or Unionist, who did not attend. Passing through Maru village on her way to the cemetery, all houses were closed and the blinds drawn. The bell of the church tolled until the procession passed out of sight. The money and land for the building of the Catholic Church had been given by Winifred's Protestant father, Sir Charles, along with the graves where two of the rebel ambushers were later buried. Though the local Catholic priest refused to have them interred on church grounds, Sir Charles offered his own grave and had it lined with the rhododendrons that had bedecked Winnie's tomb. Winnie's own epitaph reads, to this day, here lies buried all that could die of Winifred Barrington. When Sir Charles left Ireland inconsolable at the loss of his daughter, his castle was passed on to Benedictine monks. Marking the 1916 centenary, members of Lansdall Abbey recovered a long-buried garden named after Winifred, forgotten for almost 100 years, and there they planted 17 silver birch trees, remembering Robert Barton's um, first soil recommendation. 16 trees for the executed leaders of 1916, and a 17th for Winnie herself, who befriended Irish rebels and British alike. The poet Fanny Howe wrote this inscription, Winifred means Guinevere, a white phantom. She crossed boundaries without fear. Here once again, it's remarkable, I think, how a genuine working through of trauma happens after the event. For almost a century, the story of Winnie Barrington went unremarked. And when I myself was a pupil at Lenstall in the 1970s, no one spoke of her lady garden. Sometimes it takes decades, even centuries, for deep wounds to be worked through from melancholy to yield to mourning. And when such catharsis occurs, when such mourning occurs, it's often, as recent trauma studies shows, 
through the recovery of lost narratives. A last thought for Winnie Barrington. Were she to return to her garden today, how would she remember 1916? Would she wear a poppy for the fusiliers she saw into their Belgian graves? An Easter lily for her rebel friends, hazes? Or a dark rose for both? Perhaps she would wear all three, reminding us that lilies are symbols of rebirth and that the poppy is not the exclusive preserve of British war remembrance, but a symbol first invented by a Canadian poet, John McCrae, for all war-grieving peoples, a practice first popularised by French and American women known as the poppy ladies. One could imagine Winifred wearing a lily on one collar, a poppy on the other, and a red rose in between, reminding us that roses belong to everyone, from the dark Rosaline of Celtic poetics to the red rose of England and the Rosa Mystica herself. Winifred held to a common country that exceeded division into nations. She hoped against hope for a place where enemies might become allies, where hostility might yield to hospitality in a new kind of Ireland, post-nationalist and post-unionist. Winifred Barrington paid the price, but her hope remains. Last uh, June, more or less at this time, after we had uh, performed Twinsome Mines in Belfast and Derry, we went down to Glenstall to Maru Village and performed in the local Mintinitira Hall there, a small hall packed, about two or three hundred people, trying to get in, and, and some of them were, were descendants of the Hayes family, and I can tell you, you could hear a pin drop, um, but thereby hangs another tale. Uh, it was the first time for many of them that they had heard the story actually being told. And it reminded me, if I could go into parenthesis for one moment, of um, uh, an experience I had in McGill University years ago, giving a lecture on remembering the Holocaust, where I was talking about two different ways of cinematically remembering uh, the Shoah, namely Landsman's Shoah and Spielberg's um, Schindler's List. And to cut a long story short, at, at the end, this little old lady came down, hobbled down and said to me, you know, I was one of Schindler's List. And she said, after I survived, uh, I could never talk about it to anybody, to my husband, to my children, to my therapist, to my relatives, not even to myself. But when I saw myself being played in the film by Spielberg, um, I suddenly was able to go back there. Through a narrative detour, uh, the, the past was unlocked and the trauma, in some sense, recovered and, and healed. But, you know, 60 years later. So let me conclude then uh, with a final story of double remembrance. This time, the story of the poet-soldier, will be familiar to many of you here, of course, Francis Ledworth, a brilliant mind caught in the crossfire of British-Irish relations. A Catholic labourer from Meath, Ledwich sided with the Irish volunteers before enlisting in the British Army. And this, of course, is a written story. Even though Ledwich was, was ignored uh, for, for, for many decades and maybe even generations, Heaney sort of revived him in a poem, as we'll see in a moment, and I think in the last year, uh, Derry brought out, uh, the, the um, nerve centre in Derry uh, brought out a comic book, graphic uh, novel of Ledwich. And um, there have been other retrievals of him too. But it, I'm, I'm moving here just from my last example to, to written uh, history, but written neglected, largely neglected history. But, but I think things are, are changes, changing. A Catholic labourer from Meath, 
Ledwidge sided with the Irish volunteers before enlisting in the British Army. He was, like many, persuaded by Redmond that fighting with Britain would achieve home rule, declaring that, quote, he could not stand aside while others sought to defend Ireland's freedom. Ledwidge was killed at Boisingen, Flanders, in July 1917. It was the first day of the Third Battle of Ypres, and he was serving with the Royal Inniskillen Fusiliers. Aged 29, he was having a tea break when struck by German artillery. He fell at a place called Le Carrefour de la Rose, Crossroads of the Rose. A chaplain who knew him, Father Devas, recorded, Ledwidge killed, blown to bits. Today, Ledwidge's grave is inscribed with lines from his own poem, Lament for Thomas MacDonough. This is out in Flanders. A signatory of the 1916 proclamation whose violent death in Dublin prefigured Ledwidge's own. Ledwidge and MacDonough may have, been, may have worn opposite uniforms, but they were brothers at heart. I quote Ledwidge. He shall not hear the bittern cry in the wild sky where he is lain, nor the voices of the sweeter birds above the wailing of the rain. In another poem from Flanders, Lament for the Post of 1916, Ledwidge confessed empathy for the dreams of the Dublin martyrs at a time when Ireland oscillated between being what he called a country and a nation. If nation is construed as a unitary political ideal, based on sovereignty, one and indivisible, country is a place of natural elements and multiple living things. People, birds, flora, flora, fauna, rivers, trees. Assuming the voice of the poor old woman, icon of Ireland mourning her sons, Ledwich gives her a concrete locale, namely Derry of the Little Hills. I quote, At break of day the fowler came and took my blackbirds from their songs and loved me well through shame and blame. But in the lovely hush of eve, weeping I grieve the silent bills. Ledwidge blends images of his own childhood in Meath with symbols of the martyrs, whom the woman mourns as vanished birds, blackbirds. She hopes one day will return. Ledwidge sees blackbirds as liminal creatures, half natural and present and half symbolic and absent, double denizens of Ireland as a country that exists and a nation yet to exist. Sixty years on, Seamus Heaney composed a powerful elegy to Ledwidge. Written in 1980 at the height of the Ulster Troubles, Heaney recognised a mirror image in this conflicted poet. He reimagines Ledwood, forlorn in the trenches of Flanders, which Heaney compares to passage graves of the Boyne, where Ledwidge grew up. Heaney quotes the letter from Ledwidge, lamenting his split between the Britain he serves in Flanders and the Ireland he has had to leave behind, with, quote, no place among the nations but the place of Cinderella, unquote. Confessing deep inner division, Ledwidge expresses hope for some post-war reunion. I am sorry, he says, that Party politics should ever divide our tents, but not without the hope that a new Ireland will arise from her ashes in the ruins of Dublin, like the Phoenix, with one purpose. Heaney enters the mind of Ledwidge thus. I quote his poem in memoriam Francis Ledwidge. I think of you in your Tommy's uniform, a haunted Catholic face, pallid and brave, ghosting the trenches with a bloom of hawthorn, or silence cord from a boyne passage grave. A big strafe puts the candles out in Ypres to be called a British soldier while your country has no place among nations. Heaney locates Leverage's identity crisis in the double culture he grew up in, playing nationalist Gaelic games with locals and cricket with his unionist mentor, Lord Dunsany, writing his best poem for a 1916 martyr, McDonough, 
while having his first volume introduced by a loyalist peer. Heaney concludes his elegy by identifying these strains of cross-loyalty as both a conflict in Irish-British politics and a cleft in Lebridge's own psyche, a double split which tore him to shreds quite as brutally as the shrapnel from German guns. Quote Heaney, You were rent by shrapnel six weeks later. In you, our dead enigma, all the strains crisscross in useless equilibrium. You were not keyed or pitched like these true blue ones, though all of you consort now underground. So when he imagines here in the conclusion of his poem, different soldiers marching to different tunes, all reconnected through the underground passage graves joining Boyne to Boisinger. And curiously, it's to a similar Boyne connection that Frank McGuinness alludes in his play Observes the Sons of Ulster Marching Towards the Somme, where a troop of northern Protestants prepare for battle. Facing the River Somme on the first day of July, the day their forefathers waged the Battle of the Boyne in, in 1690, the Ulstermen reimagine all the Irish rivers they've left behind. I quote, Jesus, that's it, the source of that strange smell. The river, the Somme. It smells like home, a river at home. It's bringing us home. We're not in France. This river is ours. This land's ours. We've come home. The Somme is not what we think it is. It's the lagan. It's the foil. It's the balm. So let me briefly, briefly conclude a few paragraphs. Seamus Heaney, Frank McGuinness, Louise Callaghan, Sebastian Barry, Fanny Howe, all these and many other contemporary Irish writers have been responding to 1916 with stories that supplement history. Working across generations, they transmute trauma into drama to the extent that intolerable pain calls for conversion into narrative if healing is to occur. Trauma, Freud tells us, refers to wounds so deep they cannot be processed at the time and require a later working through in images and stories, and then finally in words, a talking cure. But it's always after the event, nachträglich. It's too hard at the time, it comes back later. Regarding 1916, no less than the famine and other violent ruptures in Ireland's past, no doubt including the civil wars, the metamorphosis of history into story achieves catharsis by turning ghosts into ancestors. The ghosts of 1916 must be laid so that living men and women may return, each with their local habitation and a name. So good commemoration, I will conclude, offers a way beyond pathological polarities of either or towards an open culture of both and. Current centenaries offer an opportunity to transcend the clash of binaries, nationalist and unionist, poppy and lily, Protestant Catholic, so that Ireland and Britain might escape cycles of enmity and become players on a more transnational stage, regional, European, still hope, global. This maturation, this maturation, beyond mimetic rivalry, is helped, I submit, by embracing in Ireland the poets and artists have imagined, a land more wisely balanced between what Ledwood called country and nation. Country, as noted, marks a commons of earthen elements, a shared ecology of lands and waters. Recall Ledwood's blackbirds or Barton's birches, McGuinness's rivers, Winifred's flowers of remembrance. Think also of Heaney's underground passageways and bottomless bogs that open onto oceans. I quote, that subject people stuff as a cod's game, 
It's time to swim out on your own and fill the element with signatures on your own frequency. Echo soundings, searches, probes, allurements. Elver gleams in the dark of the whole sea. Country is a place of body and flesh, of brotherhood and sisterhood. It's a place of daring desire and yea-saying life. It's a promise of undying natality which precedes the nation and seeds its reinvention, its perpetual reinvention. But if country marks a space before the nation, there's also a space beyond it, and it goes by the name of cosmos. And any nation needs to be chaperoned by both country before it and cosmos beyond it. This is a site, cosmos, that transcends all frontiers. A fifth province of mind, Clocade in Gaelic, which exceeds the four provinces of north, south, east, and west. And of course, in Irish, Clocade means a province, but we've only got four. Where's the fifth? It's the cosmic one. It's the imaginary one. It's the finisterre of hope where all pilgrimages lead, going back to the navigatios of the ancient Irish monks. Diasporas of risk allowing for new possibilities of thought. Such a migrant cosmos was, I believe, a catalyst of the great cultural enlightenment, which ignited a whole revolution of ideas in the extraordinary generation leading up to 1916. It promised a genuinely pluralist vision, witnessed in the proliferation of revivalist writings and journals in the first quarter of the 20th century. Brilliant imaginative work ranging from the 1916 leaders, Pierce Conley Griffith, all of whom had their own intellectual journals, to the bold cosmopolitanism of Tom Kettle and the Sheehy sisters, who I didn't have time to go into today, but thereby hangs another very interesting set of tales of double remembrance. Utopian visions vowed to international emancipation and the regeneration of mind announced by James Joyce Quote, one where everyone can say, Mondana sum, I belong to the world. This cosmos of imagination is a privileged site for the remaking of symbols between nation and country. As I've tried to indicate in some of the examples of crisscrossing scenes, of micro-stories, bridges and trenches, river runs and passageways, between Boyne and Boisinga, Dublin and Ypres, the Lagan and the Psalm, exchanging stories, changing histories, recovering and reinventing again and again. So let me end with rivers that never end, and one river in particular on whose banks the Dublin forecourts and the General Post Office rose up and fell in 1916, and from whose quays and harbours naval ships sailed to Flanders, full of royal Irish fusiliers. A river which served as a waterways for centuries, opening Ireland to the world and bringing the world to Ireland, visitors and invaders, migrants and planters, aliens and refugees. They keep coming, and we hope there'll always be an open door not to mention the boatloads of famine survivors escaping to Liverpool, London, Glasgow and beyond. The same river crossed by link canals where the Irish poet Paddy Kavanagh composed his own memorial to the quotidian and the banal. Again, the forgotten stories of history, of official history. I quote Kavanagh, O commemorate me with no hero courageous tomb, but a canal bank seat for the passerby. The river, the same river, which James Joyce turned into Anna Livia, bringer of plurabilities, whose music, quote, rendered all animated great British and Irish things visible in its glittery gleam darkling adown a fluvial flow and flow. Memor me, memor me, the Joycean washerwoman chimed in Finnegan's wake, until retelling history and forgiving the past, they could say, lave it so. L-A-V-E. Lave it so, as in lave, to wash and heal the wounds of the past, and also as in 
Leave it so. Leave it so. Let be. There are times to reclaim and times to let go. The double trauma of Dublin and the Psalm in 1916 is a time, I think, for both. Remembering and forgetting in right balance is a way of salving the scars of the past. Remembering, sorry, forgetting what's been too remembered, that is, the triumphal, reified, official, simplistic myths, the binary myths, the divisive myths, and remembering what's been too forgotten, the ordinary acts, the common suffering, the promissory notes. History is in between. Ireland, North and South, Unionist and Nationalist, needs a healing of history through a catharsis of story. The work of recovery and recreation goes on. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this History Hub podcast. To listen to many more podcasts, including podcasts from the Commemorating Partition and Civil Wars in Ireland project, go to historyhub.ie.